first ever selfie was taken in 1839 by an early American photographer named Robert Cornelius. And when I say early, I mean this guy was one of the first ever people to take a portrait. There were a few photos taken before his that technically included people, but those people were generally fuzzy parts of a larger landscape. The daguerreotype, which was the first publicly available photographic process and the only real option for taking photos for about 20 years after its invention, was only invented that very year, in 1839. So Cornelius got himself one of these devices, figured out how to process the resulting images, and captured an image of himself five years before Louis Daguerre, the inventor of the daguerreotype, would have a portrait taken of himself with his own invention. The daguerreotype was a relatively simple machine and made use of a natural phenomena called camera obscura, which is also sometimes referred to as a pinhole image. This technique for capturing a natural scene was used by Renaissance-era painters at times to plot out images onto a canvas by poking a hole in a box or a tent and then allowing the photons, the light from outside, to cast an image of whatever was outside the box onto a surface inside the tent. The pinhole focused the external light, like a projector. Now, the resultant image was inverted. It would be upside down, but this allowed them to project an image of what was outside the tent in three dimensions onto a flat surface, which they could then trace onto a canvas to get its shape. And then they'd take that outline, flip it so it was right side up, and then paint it as usual. This same concept was used for the daguerreotype, but instead of using that pinhole projection effect, that camera obscura, to capture an image by tracing it, he built a box with a pinhole in it that would project the image onto a photosensitive plate, a plate that was treated with chemicals that were darkened by exposure to light. So if you were to treat a piece of metal with something like silver iodide, bromide, and chloride, you could expose that sheet of metal to light selectively, just the light that came through that little pinhole, and it would darken the pieces of the metal where there was light, and you would not darken, or would darken less intensely, the pieces that were not light, or which were exposed to relatively less light. Before Daguerre invented his publicly available device, though, which arguably brought photography to the masses, he first had to meet another Frenchman named Joseph Nicephore Nieps, who is today credited with being the inventor of photography, and who was honestly just a truly interesting guy. One of the more steampunkish historical figures that I've ever read about, actually. In addition to developing a technique called heliography, which is a photographic process that creates what's called heliographs, and the oldest surviving photographic artifacts that we still have today are heliographs, so they're pretty sturdy pieces of work. In addition to that, he also created the world's first internal combustion engine, called the pyrealophore, which he invented with his brother, Cloud. And he also invented an upgraded version of what at the time was called the louse machine, or dandy horse, which he improved upon in numerous ways to create the Velocipede. And if you've ever seen one of those old-timey bicycles with one big wheel and one small wheel, that's a Velocipede. This guy invented the Velocipede, and that creation, which means fast foot, became all the rage, a huge trend in Victorian European high society for a while. 
In addition to all of that, he seems to have been a truly weird dude and super paranoid. When Daguerre first reached out to him, Nieps at first would not talk to him, paranoid as he was about his ideas being stolen or released to the public before he'd developed them suitably. He eventually came to trust Daguerre enough to start a letter-based correspondence, which is part of what allowed Daguerre to create his daguerreotype because of what he learned from those discussions. But those letters were written in numerical code. Nieps came to trust Daguerre, but he still did not trust that the letters would not be intercepted and read by someone else. Someone else may be hoping to develop their own photographic methods, piggybacking off his discoveries and inventions. All of which, as I mentioned, eventually culminated in Daguerre developing his namesake device, using scientific know-how developed with his paranoid steampunk countryman, and optical know-how developed by Renaissance-era painters. This little box with a photosensitive piece of metallic paper in the back was then set up by Robert Cornelius in 1839. He opened the lens, stepped in front of it for about a minute, folding his arms and staring rakishly just off-center from the camera, and then replaced the lens cap, cutting off the light and leaving an image on that paper that became famous. A replication of it is actually on his tombstone, and that self-portrait today is considered to be the precursor of the countless selfies that came after. From the German World War I pilot who photographed himself in his biplane up in the air with a wing-mounted camera, to the astronaut Buzz Aldrin photographing himself in space during an extravehicular walk out in the vacuum, to the so-called monkey selfie taken by a macaque monkey who picked up a photographer's camera and almost certainly accidentally snapped a hilarious and beautiful shot of its smiling self while looking into the reflective lens. What I want to talk about today is photographic technologies and how they are evolving alongside our own desire to capture and share aspects and versions of the world and ourselves. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, No, You Really Don't Look Like That. And the subtitle is, A Guide to the New Reality Melting Technology in Your Phone's Camera. Let's start this episode with some context. The camera industry has changed dramatically in a very short period of time. And like many other aspects of society, in addition to specific industries, a lot of this change is the consequence of the arrival of smartphones and their associated technologies. At first, smartphones and their dinky little cameras were not much threat to the high-end established world of dedicated cameras and their lenses, film, fancy lights, and so on. But the twin development paths of digital cameras and smartphone-based cameras, two worlds that intersect with each other, in many particulars, but not all particulars, these eventually decided on a new future for the photography industry. And that new future was introduced largely against the traditional photography industry's will. The Eastman Kodak Company is a popular punching bag when it comes to assessing the recent history of the photography world, because from its founding as a manufacturer of photographic plates, the photosensitive materials upon which images would be projected by early cameras back in 1880, they did pretty dang well for themselves, and in a lot of ways defined the path the photography industry would take from their offices in Rochester, New York. Their position 
within the field became so dominant that they even became interwoven with period pop culture. Portable folding Kodak cameras became so well-known and ubiquitous that they were mentioned in the novel Dracula. And alongside that popularity, Kodak continued to evolve the technology, developing concepts like the autographic feature, which was a means of recording what we would today call metadata, like the date and time of exposure, along the margin of a photographic negative. They also developed the famous Kodachrome films, which became the standard, for a time at least, for recording motion pictures and slides. And they even invented the digital camera, all the way back in 1975. And notably, the following year, in 1976, Kodak produced 90% of all photographic film sold in the U.S., and 85% of all of the cameras sold in the U.S. That is part of why they are such a popular yardstick when it comes to tracking the traditional photography and related industries. Kodak was at the top of their game in very recent memory and dominated a huge swath of the American and global markets but they were eventually almost entirely undone by something that they invented and developed, but which they failed to recognize the value of and capitalize on when they had the chance and all of the advantage. Kodak invented the first digital camera, the first megapixel-scale digital camera sensor, the first digital single-lens reflex camera, or DSLR, which is the digital version of those larger, more professional-grade cameras with interchangeable lenses. And they invented the first of dozens of other digital camera-related technologies like viewing screens, OLED components, and things like that. But because their business model was predicated on selling people a camera and then selling them film for that camera forever, they did not recognize the opportunity they had sitting on their laps with this new disruptive digital tech. The Kodak engineer who invented the first digital camera in 1975, Steve Sasson, was later asked by the New York Times about this moment when Kodak overlooked this opportunity. And he said, quote, It was filmless photography. So management's reaction was, That's cute, but don't tell anyone about it. End quote. Because their business model was so reliant on their customers' continued repurchasing of a consumable product then, upper management at Kodak did not even allow themselves to consider what kind of market, what kind of possibilities and business models might exist for something like digital photography. Now, to be fair, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback when it comes to this sort of thing. The dominance of digital camera technologies seems obvious today in retrospect, when we have lenses and sensors built into essentially everything from our smartphones to our doorbells. But back then, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s, the emergence and dominance of this product category, this collection of product categories, was anything but certain. The digital sensors of the day were all pretty terrible, more like neat little gimmicks than anything practical, and nowhere near comparable to what could be achieved with chemicals and paper. So we can perhaps forgive this oversight as somewhat logical, especially for a company as big as Kodak was at the time, with so many balls in the air, so many people on the payroll, and a consequent lower tolerance for risk. If they bet the barn on a flashy new technology that did not pan out, they would be putting a lot of their employees' livelihoods at risk, not just their own. All the same, because they did not take that risk, Kodak filed for bankruptcy in 2012 and sold off a half billion dollars worth of patents to companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Samsung, HTC, and Adobe, 
which allowed them to pull back up out of bankruptcy, newly focused on relatively boring, mostly non-consumer imaging applications, and lending their nostalgia-inducing brand name to a few consumer-aimed products like point-and-shoot digital cameras and portable digital printers that they do not actually themselves make. The winners in this space, in contrast, are generally not the chemicals and paper style camera companies of yore, but instead, often at least, companies that have invested a great deal in making sensors, computer chips, and other fundamental components of the electronics age. Kodak, then, became focused on a particular method of capturing and saving images of the world, but was disrupted by companies that made electronic components that allowed them to do the same in a very different way. Capturing images using Bayer filter mosaics, which splits the light into reds, greens, and blues. Anti-aliasing filters, which reduces noise that generates during that process. And algorithms that take the resultant RGB, red, green, blue, data, and combines that color data into images that we can then view after that color information has been layered appropriately. It's almost as if the food industry was caught off guard by a new product that allows everyone to get all the nutrients and vitamins that they need each day from a pill. The digital camera and its associated technologies went back to first principles and said, what are we actually trying to achieve here? And they achieved a very similar end goal by coming at it from an entirely different angle. And as a consequence, those companies still engaged in the old dynamic, fiddling around with chemicals and paper and cameras with too many moving parts. They were caught flat-footed. The digital-first companies had too big a lead and were able to capture the markets for emerging digital sensor applications, like smartphones and backup cameras on cars, before these traditional photography companies even knew what was happening. And the fall from the top was pretty devastating. At its monetary peak in 1996, the Eastman Kodak Company had captured over two-thirds of the global camera and imaging market and their yearly revenues were around $16 billion. The company was worth over $31 billion, and its stock was selling at over $90 a share. They were, at this point in the 90s, employing far fewer people than at their all-time high employment peak of 60,400 workers, which they had achieved in 1982. But they still employed tens of thousands of people in the 90s, which is far more than the around 6,000 people that they employ today a moment in which their stock is selling at just over $2.60 a share as of the day I'm recording this, and their total value is estimated to be around $2 billion. Their yearly revenue, which again was about $16 billion in the 90s, is only around $16 million today, an order of magnitude less than in their heyday. Interestingly, though, the death of the traditional camera market has led to a massive upsurge in the total number of cameras in the world and the popularity of photography as a whole. From 2009 until 2013, the sales numbers for traditional film-based cameras tanked. Newer, digital versions of the same recaptured a lot of that market share, and the number of smartphones with cameras built in skyrocketed. The major victim of all of this movement, though, is the lower-end portion of the camera market, the 
point-and-shoot world of decent but not great non-digital devices that were replaced first by digital replications of the same, digital point-and-shoot cameras, but which are today, even in their newfangled digital iterations, largely dead in the water as a consumer category. As smartphone cameras became more capable, in part because of the evolution of their lenses and sensors, and in part because of improvements in the software that manages all that captured data, which I will talk more about in a moment, those point-and-shoot cameras do not make as much sense as they used to. The image quality is perhaps a tiny bit better, in some circumstances, than what you can capture with your smartphone, but not enough, typically, to warrant carrying around a separate device for most people. And except for zoom capabilities, in a lot of cases, smartphone sensors and software actually allow casual users to capture better images, on average, than their point-and-shoot camera-lugging brethren, because the smartphone device market is evolving a lot faster and is a lot more lucrative for the companies involved in it which means more money available for, and more incentive to, invest in research and development. This is where we get into the topic of that Atlantic piece. This article is about a recent short-lived and relatively tiny scandal revolving around Apple's newest iPhone models, the XS and the XS Max. These two phones are minor iterative upgrades to the iPhone X that was released in 2017, with the, in my opinion, fairly ugly notch at the top, the almost edge-to-edge -edge screen, and the facial recognition security features that people either love or hate. For the record, I personally kind of love and hate it for different reasons in different situations. But that ugly notch and the face-based security features are both there because of the cameras embedded in the phone, of which there are three two on the back, one on the front. But distinguishing full cameras on smartphones is getting trickier each year, because in most cases, these camera components are not isolated from each other. They have overlapping components. They utilize the variations in function between different specialized lenses and hardware and software to construct interesting, hopefully better, end results via clever manipulation. What that means in practice is that the iPhone XS has two 12-megapixel cameras on the back, and one is wider, while the other allows for more specific focus and 2x zoom. Most photos that you take with those back cameras, though, will actually use data captured from both cameras simultaneously, which allows them to then combine the two types of data, the two photographs that they take, and to use one of them for, let's say, contrast and steadiness, while the other captures color and detail. Now that's a fuzzy and incomplete explanation, but the important thing to know is that there are an increasing number of cameras and camera components on these phones, because the more data they have, the more they're able to capture from the real world, the more they can remix that data in interesting ways, using software to come up with an optimal final image. And this applies even with single-lens cameras, like those on the Google Pixel 2, which was widely considered to be the best smartphone-based camera in 2017 by a lot of photography websites, despite only having a single lens on the back, rather than the double-lens setup that the iPhone X offered. Once again, the magic here was in the software. Google had invested heavily in ensuring their algorithms knew how to crunch those numbers, process those reds, greens, and blues to get the optimal photographic outcome. Something that was crisp and clean, that worked well in low-light situations, and that provided something close to reality, something realistic, but still viewable, 
so they could amp up the light levels for photos taken in the dark, while slightly amplifying the intensity of the colors in photos of flowers, and both without losing the fidelity of what was being photographed. The scandal here is that Apple appears to have taken a slightly different approach to photos with the initial release of their new iPhone, going a little too far in their effort to smooth out surfaces to make them look better. This smoothing effect was initially noticed and outed by a guy who runs an unboxing channel on YouTube, meaning he buys things and then opens up the boxes containing the products on video, which is apparently a real thing that people spend their time making and watching on the internet. He opened up his new iPhone, took a selfie, and realized, huh, it was smoothing out his skin. Now, there are plenty of apps that purport to beautify selfies, often by doing exactly this, smoothing out patches of rough or unevenly colored skin. It's something some people choose to do, just as you might have your wedding photos retouched to whiten some teeth here, delete a stray hair there. But here we had a case where apparently, by default, Apple was smoothing users' skins in their selfies, which from some perspectives at least was a type of beauty bias, implying that we should all want to have that type of skin, but also that we did not have any choice in the matter. We could not portray the reality of our own faces, even if we wanted to, with our own most personal and everyday devices, the camera that we always have at hand. We do not have reliable numbers for 2018 yet, but it's estimated that in 2017, around 1.2 trillion photos were taken with smartphones worldwide. That is a lot of photos, and it aligns with the heuristic that the best camera is the one that you have with you. So even if your smartphone's camera is not as good as your fancy $5,000 DSLR, you are far more likely to have your smartphone with you and close at hand when something that you want to remember happens, where you see a beautiful sunset, or you want to capture an important moment for future recollection or bragging rights. Lots of photos snapped, lots of photos stored on devices, in the cloud, and shared to friends and family and social networks. And it's because of this ubiquity, of this specific type of photo taken by cameras embedded in these always-at-hand devices, that this kind of automatic manipulation, this default skin-smoothing adjustment, is disconcerting. Yes, there's the immediate concern that we might, through our software, through our algorithms, create a favored attribute, a software-defined metric of beauty, and enforce it near-universally on everybody's faces. It may also be that smoothing skin becomes so seemingly common online, everyone seems to have it, that we come to feel less than in real life. We come to feel incredibly self-conscious about our own less-than-perfectly smooth skin. And it may be that we come to judge others according to these filtered versions of reality as well. Over time, this feature, which is supposed to help us take better photos without having to think about it, without needing to have any particular photographic skills, could accidentally warp our perception of aesthetics of beauty toward the unrealistic. The secondary level of concern here is that our cameras are presenting us with images that are not representative of reality. And that is not something that most of us consider when we look at photos or when we are taking them. Digital cameras capture photonic data and divide it up into colors and then put those color pieces back together into an image. Fortunes have been made and lost as a result of successful or unsuccessful software governing these processes. 
The ability to parse visual information and then put it back together again appropriately is what sets Apple's and Google's and Samsung's smartphone cameras apart, just to name a few players in this space, all of whom are using different hardware and software combinations to manage this process. The thing is, you can rearrange those colors in countless possible ways, and some will seem more appealing, more attractive than others, while some will be technically more accurate, but less useful for more people for our intended purposes. For instance, trying to quickly capture a beautiful photo of a flower or an attractive selfie. So brighter nighttime photographs will often be appreciated, and that means manipulating some of those colors to be more pleasant and visible for us when we are viewing them. Crisper lines are also important, but only to a degree. Many people actually prefer softer lines and somewhat blurrier distinctions between colors, which is actually a core distinction between cameras that shoot in formats intended for photography professionals and those that shoot for the average smartphone user. Apple's calibration here, presumably, was an effort to make our selfies, our perception of ourselves, more superficially appealing. And to do that, it softened some lines and lost some detail, which can make photos of some things and some people a little bit more appealing according to some standards of beauty. But if you are photographing for detail to capture every aspect of reality, that photo is no longer a useful digital artifact. It's meant more for sharing than for every other possible use of a photograph. This is the line that all of these device makers are walking. Yes, you can optimize for reality to portray everything that is there perfectly, but to do so, you will need to sacrifice something else. Often, that means sacrificing superficial beauty and our perception of what looks good in a casually taken selfie. You can also optimize for certain definitions of beauty, but in doing so, you will strip away some people's distinctiveness, their scars, their laugh lines, their freckles, their skin coloration, in favor of a somewhat averaged, somewhat more symmetrical-seeming version of the real person that is the basis of that smoothed-out representation, that avatar. I think it's possible to rationally argue different sides of the scandal for different purposes and people. The disconcerting point I alluded to earlier, though, is that for many of us, photographs show reality. That is our general heuristic for them. Unlike other types of media and artwork, photographs are assumed, in most cases, to show something that happened, something that is real. They are assumed to be a document of real life and truth. Truth, though, is often just reality filtered through the lens of subjectivity. And our photographs, and this is increasingly true, are flattened out pieces of reality filtered through the lenses of our subjective position, but also the precise hardware and software combinations that we used to capture and display it. This was true of the heliograph and daguerreotype too, of course. But it's easier for us and our modern eyes to see those images as non-representative of reality. They are black and white for one, but they're also often hazy and ethereal feeling, more artistic than archival. They're antiques and considered to be incomplete as a consequence. Unfortunately, though, despite today's photographs seeming more complete, more legit than chemical-based versions of the past, we actually see more diversity between photographs taken with different devices than ever before. And those differences can be subtle or slap across the face obvious. But in either case, this does not seem to be commonly understood. Most of us do not assume 
that we will look different, photographed by different cameras and lenses and smartphones, even though we almost certainly will. This does not bode well for us as a globe-spanning society because we do still, even post-Photoshop and easily accessible photo editing tools, treat media like photos with respect in terms of their concreteness and ability to truth-tell. We use them as evidence and as memory stimulators. We use them to document our lives. And this is problematic because we are delving into an age of deep fake media. Deep fakes are a type of video that show what seem to be real people, but which are, in fact, heavily and skillfully edited moving images that have had someone's head, body, or whatever else applied to someone else's head, body, or whatever else. These deep fakes were obviously fake when you saw them a few years ago, but the things that can be done with that technology today, like replicating someone in a live video in real time, making them seem to say things and seem to behave in a particular way with picture-perfect video and audio, it's remarkable and moderately terrifying. Many experts in this space, and I tend to feel the same as they do, are assuming that if we don't get these things figured out soon, don't figure out some way to distinguish fact from fiction in this type of media, we are going to have some kind of major industrial or international incident as a consequence. It may not be believable to everyone if a new video of President Trump is released in which he seems to say that we are going to first strike nuke China. But if it's believable to someone, perhaps many people, perhaps the right people in positions to act upon that information, and the people on the other end of that maybe legitimate threat, that could be a real issue. The same is true of a deepfake video of a celebrity saying that they have engaged in pedophilia or a public personality spreading some kind of commonly held conspiracy theory. It wouldn't need to be a perfect and believable video to everyone to ruin a life or a career or trigger an international incident. It just needs to be believable enough and in a format that we take for granted, that we default to believing because we can see it and hear it and it looks like reality. It's possible then to manipulate our perception of reality with these videos and images. And deep fakes are one manifestation of what that might look like and the problems that we might face once these pieces of supposed truth start showing up in the right places at the right times. Another troublesome technology, which like deepfakes could be used for very cool things, but also pretty terrible things, is that of neural network generated fake human beings. Researchers at NVIDIA, a company that makes computer components, especially graphics processing units, recently released the results of a project they were working on, which allowed them to take photos of people and feed those photos into their software to generate entirely new, absolutely real-looking portraits of human beings that don't exist. So the software allows them to take a photo of a person, then combine that person's features with the features of one or more other people to generate a new person. And I'll link to the results of this in the show notes. It is flabbergasting how real these not real humans made up out of other people's features look. The consequences of this innovation is not as immediately obvious as it might be with deep fakes, because it likely won't result in the pasting of a celebrity's face onto porn videos, as has been the case 
primarily with this technology thus far, but it could result in real-seeming testimonials on websites or in newspapers. It could lead to fake people being created out of nothing, whose fake faces are then used to make that personality seem real. Their face not online reverse searchable, which is one of the main ways of identifying bots and fake accounts online at the moment. These people would not be fabricated out of nothing and then have someone else's photograph on their profile. Those photographs would be completely new and made for each and every bot. And that could potentially lead to entirely new human-seeming creations who could be popped into all kinds of media, from feature films to news coverage. China is experimenting with exactly this, actually. They have developed what they are calling the world's first artificial intelligence news anchor. And although there are currently quibbles over that distinction, some experts are saying that it's not really AI, and that the fake computer-generated news anchor is based heavily on a real person, it could be that someday they will have completely fake artificially generated AI-based news anchors that have completely original features, which may not seem like a big deal initially, but especially in states with authoritarian governments. It means that they can create trustworthy-seeming entities that will completely and absolutely toe the party line, never straying from what the higher-ups want them to say, implying humanity, but actually being a puppet for those in power, without the potential of ever going astray or betraying their masters, no matter what those masters do or tell them to report. It's not a big leap to see how this same technology might be used in the online world as well to create influencers in different spaces out of nothing which could then similarly become sock puppets for whatever interests these people who created them want to push. Our realities can be manipulated by the artifacts we create. Research has indicated that our memories are actually changed every time we think about something that happened to us, because our current self introduces new knowledge, new context, new biases and understandings into those memories as we revisit them. It's almost like leaving fingerprints on photographs that we take out and then put away. We leave something new. We adjust that memory as we revisit it. The same is true of our artifacts. Every time we look at a photo from a vacation that we took, we subtly or dramatically reorient our memories to fit with that captured perception of that space, that location, that perspective. Our memories recalibrate to fit the experience as it is portrayed in the photo. And over time, we come to replace our brain-based memories of these experiences with the photograph-based ones, which, in an age of ubiquitous filters and deep fakes, can be a disconcerting proposition. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a nonfiction work called How to Change Your Mind by the author Michael Pollan. I had this book recommended to me by a friend who has a bit more interest in psychedelics than I do. I guess you might say more of a practical interest in psychedelics than I do. It's something that I find to be utterly fascinating, but didn't know a whole lot about. I came to realize after reading this book that my knowledge about it was pretty superficial. 
But what I really appreciated about this book is that it goes deep into the history of things like LSD and psychedelic mushrooms, and it goes into the author's own experiences with these substances in a very realistic way. It's definitely not a preacher coming at you trying to convince you to do this stuff. It's someone who himself was somewhat skeptical and a little bit afraid to take that leap, who then took the leap and was able to analyze things from a fairly neutral standpoint, in my opinion. So there are definitely some pro-drug use messages in this book, but I would argue that those pro-drug use messages are not the typical let's all expand our minds sort of thing. It's a lot more analytical, and it introduces you to a lot of different voices that have very different perspectives on this, along with some fairly practical knowledge in terms of how to do what and when if you do decide to take the leap yourself. This is something that I am still totally on the fence about for what it's worth. Even after reading this, I did feel that there were enough pros and cons to keep me on that fence that I was already on, but I do feel like I know approximately 4,000 times as much on the subject as I did before. So if and when I decide something more concrete, I feel like it will be an informed decision. If you'd like to know more about this collection of topics, I highly recommend picking up a copy of How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on and see if I'm coming to your neck of the woods. And if so, if relevant, pick up tickets for that event at becomingtour.com. And you can find my newest project and consider sending me a question to answer if you're interested at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.